Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Argus Fertilizer Matters podcast. My name is Maria Mosquera and I'm the global editor for Sulphur here at Argus. Today on the show, I'm excited to be joined by Mike Nash, our senior editor for the Argus editorial team here in London. Mike has been with Argus for 12 years and has spent nearly two decades following mainly phosphates, but has covered most of the major commoditized fertilizer markets at one time or another. Mike, welcome. Hello, Maria. Good to be here. Now, today it's a bit different because on the podcast this week, we're going to talk about where it all started and take you back in time to the origins of the fertilizer industry. Now, Mike, you say that fertilizers is actually one of the most important technological innovations ever developed by humankind. I do, because when you start your journalistic career and and then you start telling people that you write about fertilizers, people kind of give you that funny look as if to say this doesn't sound very interesting. The more you get into it, the more you realise just how fundamental it's been to human development. I would actually put it up there with things like the internal combustion engine, with the plane, with the computer, with the mobile phone, because without it, you wouldn't have had that massive move from rural to urbanisation. You wouldn't have had the industrial revolution. You wouldn't have had the workforce. The population growth and the explosion that we've seen really since the late 1700s and into the 1800s, a lot of that can actually be put down to the advent of fertilisers industrial scale food production and that's really fueled population growth. So when did humans first become aware of the importance of fertilizers? Well it's a it's a story about observation really. I mean humanity has has known about the benefits and we're talking about organic fertilizers now. So the stuff that everybody jokes about, you know, manure and compost. But ancient civilizations, particularly the Romans, particularly the Chinese, developed it into a bit of an art form. They didn't know how it worked, but they knew that it did work. And through a process of observation and elimination, the Romans actually had quite a scientific approach to it. They knew which manure was best for what crop. And that was through you know hundreds of years of observation. And particularly the Romans in China understood the idea of crop rotation. So if you grew different crops on fields in one season and then either let that land lie fallow, it would naturally repair some of the nutrient content in the soil. Or if you grew a different crop, it would take out different nutrients. So it understood that idea of crop rotation and crop fallow, letting crops and fields lie fallow. But I think there was a realisation even in the 18th century and the early 19th century that at some point that was never going to be enough. At some point, naturally occurring fertiliser was going to run out and that was already becoming the case. But I understand that it's not until the 1800s that the industry really started to scale up. Tell me a bit about that. Yeah, this is really where it starts to get historically very, very interesting. You start to see real industrial scale exploitation of natural fertilizer reserves. So one of the one of the earliest examples, one of the most well documented is around the period of sort of around the 1850s to the 1870s. And this was uh, a region just off the coast of Peru called the Chinchas Islands. And at one point, acre for acre, that was one of the most valuable pieces of land on Earth. It held about 10 stories of guano, which is basically a particular type of verge dropping. And this could be seen from miles away. These were like mountains of the stuff. This was naturally occurring. 
the locals had known about it for hundreds of years and had used it for hundreds of years. But really, from about the 1850s onwards, you start to see that, if you like, a kind of imperialization of it and exploitation by the Western countries, particularly the US, Germany, France and the UK. But it's not a particularly happy story. It used Chinese workers, hundreds of Chinese workers, many of them were actually effectively slaves. And essentially they dug this stuff out by hand and carried it by wheelbarrows to the cliffs and then threw it down canvas chutes into waiting holds of sailing ships. And there could be hundreds of these sailing ships there at any one time. You know, we write about demurrage in the modern fertilizer industry, but we're talking about weeks, hundreds of these things. Uh, in fact, the only way to jump the queue was actually to bribe the local sort of governor. Loading was dirty, it was dusty. If you were a crew member on a ship, it was bad enough. If you were a trimmer, they could only work for 20 minutes. They would get nosebleeds or go blind temporarily. Some of them would climb into the rigging to avoid this. It was it was horrible. For the slaves, it was 200 times worse. They would work terribly long hours. They would get covered in dust. They would go down with all kinds of ailments because of the exposure to the dust. They would have breathing problems. They weren't particularly well fed. They were worked almost to death. 25% of them were always ill or couldn't work and treated terribly. And if they didn't meet their quota, if they didn't dig out enough, they were forced to work on the only day of rest. So it was incredibly grim. They were punished for the, the most minor infractions. It was awful. It's a terrible story. But the results of bringing this stuff back to the West were absolutely staggering. So I think in the US, it was observed that if you put it on particular crops, it was about 30 to 40 times more powerful, more potent and full of nutrient than traditional barnyard or you know farm manure that they'd used. The Peruvian government realised its worth. So they earned a phenomenal amount of money and through taxes and through granting of, of licences. And about one third of the sale of every tonne of guano went directly to the government. Eventually, the, the Peruvians cotton on to this. They nationalise the industry in the sort of the 1870s, and then they sell contracts to the foreign firms to mine the guano. Up until then, it had been a wild west. But it was a, a pretty gilded age for Peru. It gave them an awful lot of money. It, it created an awful lot of wealth, also an awful lot of corruption. But then in the 1850s, it was all over. The, they began to hit rock and all those thousands of years that it had taken to develop those deposits, they were stripped out in just 20 years. Quite incredible. So once the chinchas had been thoroughly cleaned out, what happened next? So the attention then turned to the Atacama Desert, which is a relatively small strip on the on the western edge of the Peruvian country. And because of its unique climate, it's very dry, it had significant deposits of naturally occurring nitrates. So say it was the most concentrated area of sodium nitrate on Earth. So the world already understood that fertilizer was important, but there was an added element to this. In, in fact, that not only was it useful as a fertilizer, it was useful for fireworks and then eventually for gunpowder. So they were able to use it not only for fertilizer application, but also to create nitric acid for high explosives. And that coincides and, you know, it's chicken and egg, but actually the fact that it could be used to make food and be used for explosives made it uniquely valuable. 
so if you look at the US, this is around the time of the US Civil War. So the US uses it then, but it also uses it in the expansion west for blowing out mountains to build railroads as part of its industrialization process. So the US used it for both, but Europe in particular used it for fertilizer application, and that particularly Britain, Germany and France. The trade boomed. Almost anybody could set up a refinery. Ports were built along the coast. Peru again made an awful lots of money and anyone could claim land as long as they paid the, the requisite government fees and taxes. Trade boomed and the government again realised it was almost in foreign hands, but Peru needed the money. And again, they decided to nationalise it in around the 1870s. The issue then becomes that the, there was an awful lot of Chilean workers in Peru and there was an awful lot of political friction between the two countries, particularly when Peru decided to nationalise the fertiliser sector. And of course, also, it's, as it got more money, its military expanded. So there was a little bit of a, an arms race between the two countries. There was an added complication in that Bolivia controlled a strip of nitrate desert between the two countries. And there was a dispute between Chile and Bolivia over who owned this area. So Peru urges Bolivia to reject Chilean claims. And then the two countries sign a secret defence pact. And in 1879, this actually leads to the nitrate war, which is fought mostly at sea. Chile actually wins the war and Peru cedes its entire nitrate rich desert to Chile. As of 1881, Chile has total control of the world's most valuable resource. And there's stories even like the US uses it to blast areas of Mount Rushmore. You know, that's how this stuff gets used. And again, you have that rapid industrialization and urbanization in Europe. Populations flock to urban centers. You have fewer farmers. They have to feed more people because the population is growing. Diets are changing too. All of that fueled demand for higher yields. And they estimate by around 1900, Chile was making around two thirds of all nitrates used on Earth. Germany was the largest user because it didn't have the resources associated with Britain's empire. Britain had access to India where you could get a similar fertilizer product. So by 1912, it's importing nearly a million tons of this stuff. Chile invests more, it invests more in refineries. And again, soon nitrates is bringing in more than half the country's total national income. And it invests that money well. It, in contrast to Peru, it invests in schools, in infrastructure. But then the bubble bursts. Again, rampant nitrate speculation that pushes up the share prices well above the value of the land and the mills. So to keep returning profits, they've argued produced, they flood the market, and that starts to pull down prices. And I guess from there, the industry that we write about and price today was born. That's really fascinating. I know I've learned a lot about the history of the fertilizer industry, and I'm sure so have many of our listeners. And that brings us to the end of the Argus Fertilizer Matters podcast. Thanks to Mike Nash, senior editor at Argus. Thanks, Maria. And I just should say, Maria, that a lot of this background information comes from a book called The Alchemy of Air, which was written by Thomas Hager, and I'm sure can be found from all good bookshops. Uh, it's a very good history, not only of the early parts of the fertilizer industry, but also it goes on to describe the whole industrialization of the, the process and talking a lot about Haber and Bosch and that development of that process, which is obviously is emboldened by the onset of the, the First World War. You can also read uh, a series about the history of the fertilizer industry in the Argus Fertilizer Focus magazine. Please use the link on the podcast page 
to sign up for free for that magazine. And as part of this podcast, we have uh, three or four slides that just give you a nice sort of summary of the story that I'm telling and also has a few um, images of the islands and some of the sort of industrial processes that uh, took place. Thanks, Mike. Don't forget to look out for the next episode, which we will record in a couple of weeks. Until then, this is Maria Mosquero for Argus Media. Bye for now.